History of England, Chapter Seven, Part Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Seven, Part Five. It is true that several remarkable conversions had recently taken place, but they were such as did little credit to the Church of Rome. Two men of high rank had joined her communion, Harry Mordaunt, Earl of Peterborough, and James Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. But Peterborough, who had been an active soldier, courtier, and negotiator, was now broken down by years and by infirmities and those who saw him totter about the galleries of Whitehall, leaning on a stick and swathed up in flannels and plasters, comforted themselves for his defection by remarking that he had not changed his religion till he had outlived his faculties. Salisbury was foolish to a proverb. His figure was so bloated by sensual indulgence as to be almost incapable of moving, and the sluggish body was the abode of an equally sluggish mind. He was represented in popular lampoons as a man made to be duped, as a man who had hitherto been the prey of gamesters, and who might as well be the prey of friars. A pasquinade, which about the time of Rochester's retirement was fixed on the door of Salisbury House in the Strand, described in coarse terms the horror with which the wise Robert Cecil, if he could rise from his grave, would see to what a creature his honours had descended. These were the highest in station among the proselytes of James. There were other renegades of a very different kind, needy men of parts who were destitute of principle and of all sense of personal dignity. There is reason to believe that among these was William Wycherley, the most licentious and hard-hearted writer of a singularly licentious and hard-hearted school. It is certain that Matthew Tyndall, who at a later period acquired great notoriety by writing against Christianity, was at this time received into the bosom of the infallible Church, a fact which, as may easily be supposed, the divines with whom he was subsequently engaged in controversy did not suffer to sink into oblivion. A still more infamous apostate was Joseph Haynes, whose name is now almost forgotten, but who was well known in his own time as an adventurer of versatile part, sharper, coiner, false witness, shambale, dancing-master, buffoon, poet, comedian. Some of his prologues and epilogues were much admired by his contemporaries, and his merit as an actor was universally acknowledged. This man professed himself a Roman Catholic, and went to Italy in the retinue of a Castlemaine, but was soon dismissed for misconduct. If any credit is due to a tradition which was long preserved in the green room, Haynes had the impudence to affirm that the Virgin Mary had appeared to him and called him to repentance. After the revolution, he attempted to make his peace with the town by a penance more scandalous than his offence. One night, before he acted in a farce, he appeared on the stage in a white sheet with a torch in his hand and recited some profane and indecent doggerel which he called his recantation. With the name of Haynes was joined in many libels the name of a more illustrious renegade, John Dryden. 
Dryden was now approaching the decline of life. After many successes and many failures, he had at length attained by general consent the first place among living English poets. His claims on the gratitude of James were superior to those of any man of letter in the kingdom. But James cared little for verses and much for money. From the day of his accession, he set himself to make small economical reforms, such as bring on a government the reproach of meanness, without producing any perceptible relief to the finances. One of the victims of his injudicious parsimony was the poet laureate. Orders were given that in the new patent which the demise of the crown made necessary, the annual butt of sack, originally granted to Johnson, and continued to Johnson's successors, should be omitted. This was the only notice which the king, during the first year of his reign, deigned to bestow of the mighty satirist, who, in the very crisis of the great struggle of the Exclusion Bill, had spread terror through the Whig ranks. Dryden was poor, and impatient of poverty. He knew little and cared little about religion. If any sentiment was deeply fixed in him, that sentiment was an aversion to priests of all persuasions, Levites, augurs, muftis, Roman Catholic divines, Presbyterian divines, divines of the Church of England. He was not naturally a man of high spirit, and his pursuits had been by no means such as were likely to give elevation or delicacy to his mind. He had, during many years, earned his daily bread by pandering to the vicious taste of the pit, and by grossly fettering rich and noble patrons. Self-respect and the fine sense of the becoming were not to be expected from one who had led a life of mendicancy and adulation. Finding that, if he continued to call himself a Protestant, his services would be overlooked, he declared himself a papist. The king's parsimony instantly relaxed. Dryden was gratified with a pension of a hundred pounds a year, and was employed to defend his new religion both in prose and verse. Two eminent men, Samuel Johnson and Walter Scott, have done their best to persuade themselves and others that this memorable conversion was sincere. It was natural that they should be desirous to remove a disgraceful stain from the memory of one whose genius they justly admired, and with whose political feelings they strongly sympathized, but the impartial historian must with regret pronounce a very different judgment. There will always be a strong presumption against the sincerity of a conversion by which the convert is directly a gainer. In the case of Dryden there is nothing to countervail this presumption. His theological writings abundantly prove that he had never sought with diligence and anxiety to learn the truth, and that his knowledge both of the church which he quitted and of the church which he entered was of the most superficial kind. Nor was his subsequent conduct that of a man whom a strong sense of duty had constrained to take a step of awful importance. Had he been such a man, the same conviction which had led him to join the Church of Rome would surely have prevented him from violating grossly and habitually rules which that Church, in common with every other Christian society, recognizes as binding. There would have been a marked distinction between his earlier and his later compositions. He would have looked back with remorse on a literary life of near thirty years, during which his rare powers of diction and versification had been systematically employed in spreading moral corruption. 
not a line tending to make virtue contemptible or to inflame licentious desire would thenceforward have proceeded from his pen the truth aneply is that the dramas which he wrote after his pretended conversions are in no respect less impure or profane than those of his youth even when he professed to translate he constantly wandered from his original in search of images which if he had found them in his original he ought to have shunned what was bad became worse in his versions what was innocent contracted the taint from passing through his mind he made the grossest satires of juvenile more gross interpolated loose descriptions in the taste of boccaccio and polluted the sweet and limpid poetry of the georgics with filth which would have moved the loathing of virgil the help of dryden was welcome to those roman catholic divines who were painfully sustaining a conflict against all that was most illustrious in the established church they could not disguise from themselves the fact that their style disfigured with foreign idioms which had been picked up at rome and douay appeared to little advantage when compared with the eloquence of tillotson and sherlock it seemed that it was no light thing to have secured the cooperation of the greatest living masters of the english language the first service which he was required to perform in return for his pension was to defend his church in prose against tillingfleet but the art of saying things well is useless to a man who has nothing to say and this was dryden's case he soon found himself unequally paired with an antagonist whose whole life had been one long training for controversy the veteran gladiator disarmed the novice inflicted a few contemptuous scratches and turned away to encounter more formidable combatants dryden then betook himself to a weapon at which he was not likely to find his match he retired for a time from the bustle of coffee-houses and theatres to a quiet retreat in huntingdonshire and there composed with unwonted care and labour his celebrated poem on the points in dispute between the churches of rome and england the church of rome he represented under the similitude of a milk-white hind ever in peril of death yet fated not to die the beasts of the field were bent on her destruction the quaking hare indeed observed a timorous neutrality but the Sicilian fox the presbyterian wolf the independent bear the anabaptist boar glared fiercely at the spotless creature yet she could venture to drink with them at the common watering-place under the protection of her friend the kingly lion the church of england was typified by the panther spotted indeed but beautiful too beautiful for a beast of prey the hind and the panther equally hated by the ferocious population of the forest conferred a part on their common danger they then proceeded to discuss the points on which they differed and while wagging their tails and licking their jaws held a long dialogue touching the real presence the authority of popes and councils the penal laws the test act oats perjuries butler's unrequited services to the cavalier party stealing fleets pamphlets and bernard's broad shoulders and fortunate matrimonial speculations the absurdity of this plan is obvious in truth the allegory could not be preserved unbroken through ten lines together no art of execution could redeem the faults of such a design yet the fable of the hind and panther is undoubtedly the most valuable addition which was made to english literature during the short and troubled reign of james the second 
in none of dryden's works can be found passages more pathetic and magnificent greater ductility and energy of language or a more pleasing and various music the poem appeared with every advantage which royal patronage could give a superb edition was printed for scotland at the roman catholic press established in holyrood house but men were in no humour to be charmed by the transparent style and melodious numbers of the apostate the disgust excited by his venality the alarm excited by the policy of which he was the eulogist were not to be sung to sleep the just indignation of the public was inflamed by many who were smarting from his ridicule and by many who were envious of his renown in spite of all the restraints under which the press lay attacks on his life and writings appeared daily sometimes he was base sometimes poet scrab he was reminded that in his youth he had paid to the house of cromwell the same servile court which he was now paying to the house of stuart one set of his assailants maliciously reprinted the sarcastic verses which he had written against popery in days when he could have got nothing by being a papist on the many satirical pieces which appeared on this occasion the most successful was the joint work of two young men who had lately completed their studies at cambridge and had been welcomed as promising novices in the literary coffee-houses of london charles montague and matthew pryor montague was of noble descent the origin of pryor was so obscure that no biographer has been able to trace it but both the adventurers were poor and aspiring both had keen and vigorous minds both afterwards climbed high both united in a remarkable degree the love of letters with the skill in those departments of business for which men of letters generally have a strong distaste of the fifty poets whose lives johnson has written montague and pryor were the only two who were distinguished by an intimate knowledge of trade and finance soon their paths diverged widely their early friendship was dissolved one of them became the chief of the whig party and was impeached by the tories the other was entrusted with all the mysteries of tory diplomacy and was long kept close prisoner by the whigs at length after many eventful years the associates so long parted were united in westminster abbey whoever has read the tale of the hind and panther with attention must have perceived that while the work was in progress a great alteration took place in the views of those who used dryden as their interpreter at first the church of england is mentioned with tenderness and respect and is exhorted to ally herself with the roman catholics against the puritan sects but at the close of the poem and in the preface which was written after the poem had been finished the protestant dissenters are invited to make common cause with the roman catholics against the church of england this change in the language of the court poet was indicative of a great change in the policy of the court the original purpose of james had been to obtain for the church of which he was a member not only complete immunity from all penalties and from all civil disabilities but also an ample share of ecclesiastical and academical endowments and at the same time to enforce with rigour the laws against the puritan sects all the special dispensations which he had granted had been granted to roman catholics all the laws which bore hardest on the presbyterians independents and baptists 
had been for a time severely executed by him. While Hayes commanded a regiment, while Powers sate at the council board, while Messe held a dinnery, while breviaries and mass books were printed at Oxford under a royal license, while the host was publicly exposed in London under the protection of the pikes and muskets of the foot guards, while friars and monks walked the streets of London in their robes, Baxter was in jail. Howe was in exile. The Five Mile Act and the Conventicle Act were in full vigour. Puritan writers were compelled to resort to foreign or to secret presses. Puritan congregations could meet only by night or in waste places, and Puritan ministers were forced to preach in the garb of colliers or of sailors. In Scotland the king, while he spared no exertion to extort from the estates full relief for Roman Catholics, had demanded and obtained new statutes of unprecedented severity against the Presbyterians. His conduct to the exiled Huguenots had not less clearly indicated his feelings. We have seen that when the public munificence had placed in his hands a large sum for the relief of those unhappy men, he, in violation of every law of hospitality and good faith, required them to renounce the Calvinistic ritual to which they were strongly attached, and to conform to the Church of England, before he would dole out to them any portion of the arms which had been entrusted to his care. Such has been his policy as long as he could cherish any hope that the Church of England would consent to share ascendancy with the Church of Rome. That hope at one time amounted to confidence. The enthusiasm with which the Tories had hailed his succession, the elections, the dutiful language and ample grants of his Parliament, the suppression of the Western insurrection, the complete prostration of the party which had attempted to exclude him from the crown, elated him beyond the bounds of reason. He felt an assurance that every obstacle would give way before his power and his resolution. His Parliament withstood him. He tried the effects of frowns and menaces. Frowns and menaces failed. He tried the effect of prorogation. From the day of the prorogation, the opposition to his designs had been growing stronger and stronger. It seemed clear that if he effected his purpose, he must effect it in defiance of that great party which had given such signal proofs of fidelity to his office, to his family, and to his person. The whole Anglican priesthood, the whole cavalier gentry, were against him. In vain had he, by virtue of his ecclesiastical supremacy, enjoined the clergy to abstain from discussing controverted points. Every parish in the nation was warned every Sunday against the errors of Rome, and these warnings were only the more effective because they were accompanied by professions of reverence for the sovereign, and of a determination to endure with patience whatever it might be his pleasure to inflict. The royalist knights and esquires, who, through forty-five years of war and faction, had stood so manfully by the throne, now expressed, in no measured phrase, their resolution to stand as manfully by the church. Dull as was the intellect of James, despotic as was his temper, he felt that he must change his course. He could not safely venture to outrage all his protestant subjects at once. If he could bring himself to make concessions to the party which predominated in both houses, if he could bring himself to leave to the established religion all its dignities, 
emoluments and privileges unimpaired he might still break up presbyterian meetings and fill the jails with baptist preachers but if he was determined to plunder the hierarchy he must make up his mind to forego the luxury of persecuting the dissenters if he was henceforward to be at feud with his old friends he must make a truce with his old enemies he could overpower the anglican church only by forming against her an extensive coalition including sects which though they differed in doctrine and government far more widely from each other than from her might yet be induced by their common jealousy of her greatness and by their common dread of her intolerance to suspend their animosities till she was no longer able to oppress them this plan seemed to him to have one strong recommendation if he could only succeed in conciliating the protestant nonconformists he might flatter himself that he was secure against all chance of rebellion according to the anglican divines no subject could by any provocation be justified in withstanding the lords anointed by force the theory of the puritan sectaries was very different those sectaries had no scruple about smiting tyrants with the sword of gideon many of them did not shrink from using the dagger of Hehud. they were probably even now meditating another western insurrection or another rye house plot james therefore conceived that he might safely persecute the church if he could only gain the dissenters the party whose principles afforded him no guarantee would be attached to him by interest the party whose interests he attacked would be restrained from insurrection by principle influenced by such considerations as these james from the time at which he parted in anger with his parliament began to meditate a general league of all nonconformists catholic and protestant against the established religion so early as christmas sixteen eighty five the agents of the united provinces informed the states-general that the plan of a general toleration had been arranged and would soon be disclosed the reports which had reached the dutch embassy proved to be premature the separatists appear however to have been treated with more lenity during the year sixteen eighty six than during the year sixteen eighty five but it was only by slow degrees and after many struggles that the king could prevail on himself to form an alliance with all that he most abhorred he had to overcome an animosity not slight or capricious not of recent origin or hasty growth but hereditary in his line strengthened by great wrongs inflicted and suffered through a hundred and twenty eventful years and intertwined with all his feelings religious political domestic and personal four generations of stuart had waged a war to the death with four generations of puritans and through that long war there had been no stuart who had hated the puritans so much or who had been so much hated by them as himself they had tried to blast his honour and to exclude him from his birthright they had called him incendiary cutthroat poisoner they had driven him from the admiralty and the privy council they had repeatedly chased him into banishment they had plotted his assassination they had risen against him in arms by thousands he had avenged himself on them by havoc such as england had never before seen 
Their heads and quarters were still rotting on poles in all the market-places of Somersetshire and Dorsetshire. Aged women held in high honour among the sectaries for piety and charity had, for offences which no good prince would have thought deserving even of a severe reprimand, been beheaded and burned alive. Such had been, even in England, the relations between the king and the Puritans. And in Scotland the tyranny of the king and the fury of the Puritans had been such as Englishmen could hardly conceive. To forget an enmity so long and so deadly was no light task for a nature singularly harsh and implacable. End of part five.